This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, hello. It's great to have your company for The Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Huff coming to you across South Australia and to the far west of New South Wales. Coming up, the new director of the Outback Communities Authority outlines what she is keen to tackle in the job. And Wool Producers Australia have got some funding for an industry representative to pursue some processing opportunities in Vietnam. So we'll look to capitalise on that and we'll work with that reason, uh, with the AWI staff in country as well. More on that soon. It's certainly become a bit of a priority for the industry given the amount of wool that is processed in China. The push for a, a diversified processing sector is a, a pretty keen topic for many wool producers and wool organisations. So we'll follow that soon. But uh, first up today, the state government and Meat and Livestock Australia are putting $2.9 million towards a new four-year wild dog management plan. It's the first project MLA has funded that focuses on large-scale producer-led activities, including wild dog management. But Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven can explain a little further. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cathy. The Malinowskis government is teaming up with MLA to deliver more funding into the wild dog management in South Australia. What's been decided on? Yeah, so it's a really important program. Uh, it's a $2.9 million funding boost altogether, uh, including with the, the funds from the Meat and Livestock Association. And it's a four-year program of wild dog management. Uh, and what this funding is going to do is to um, establish an integrated research and development producer demonstration site network in South Australia. That's the goal, um, as well as trialling new novel technologies uh, and also building capacity building so training and capacity for producers around things like predator control as well as you know, how we can boost our productivity. So uh, it's quite a, a really sort of comprehensive package with meat and livestock because we know that you know, wild dog management is so absolutely crucial to our um, sheep industries. Prior to some of the work that happened um, uh, on, on wild dog management, we were losing 20,000 sheep a year, so that was about a $4 million cost to... South Australia. So uh, it's a really important thing to get on top of. And, and as you say, the conditions have been very good for wild dogs, unfortunately, this year. Uh, so this is uh, another reason why it's so important to invest in this area. As you mentioned there, wild dogs were killing about 20,000 sheep a year. How has that changed in the, the last five years? Uh, yes, yes. So uh, I don't have the, the actual figures in front of me, uh, but we do know that, uh, that the Trapper program by itself has removed about 730 wild dogs from South Australia since 2018. Uh, there's, of course, been investing in the, the dog fence, which also plays a role in that, and also ground and aerial baiting programs. So all of those put together have had uh, an impact, quite a significant impact, but we're still looking at new ways to be able to address the problem. And this demonstration site, where is it going to be based? Uh, so the details are still being worked through. We'll have more to say um, about that uh, in the not-too-distant future. But what's really quite, uh, I guess, a landmark agreement is the fact that this is the first time that Meat and Livestock Australia have been involved in this kind of, um, in this kind of program. Uh, it's a, an important sort of research and development aspect uh, which perhaps hasn't been in existence in the same way before. So um, we're really pleased that MLA is getting on board and that we're able to support them to do that uh, and you know, hopefully reduce the impact of wild dogs even more significantly. 
Now, it's $2.9 million, including the $1.4 million from meat and livestock. Is this new money or is this coming out of the the investment the uh, previous government made into the wild dog fence? Oh, so this is not coming from the wild dog fence money. So um, the balance of the funds is coming from both state and industry. Okay, and it's new money? Yes. How is the wild dog fence going? I know it suffered a bit of a setback earlier in the year with flooding. Where's it up to? Yeah, so uh, it, it has been set back with flooding and, of course, also been subject to the kinds of issues that most industries are facing in terms of being able to obtain materials and so on. Um, there's been 700 kilometres rebuilt so far uh, and that is continuing. I was meeting with the um, Wild Dog Advisory Committee last week and, of course, had an update on the dog fence as well. So that is continuing uh, and, uh, again, really important to... to it's, it's been you know, really effective uh, and it's really important that we do stay on top of the rebuild of the dog fence. You mentioned some novel technologies and strategies. Do you know what some of those are? So I wanted to know, um, but the, um, uh, I think I have to leave that to the experts to be able to explain. Sometimes you can uh, look at something and it doesn't really mean as much as you would like. So there's, I think, a whole lot of technology that's happening you know, across industry, and this is no exception. Of course, we had Evoke Ag last week in Adelaide, which was a wonderful opportunity to really uh, you know, see the sorts of innovations that are happening across uh, agricultural industries. Uh, and I know that uh, the sorts of technologies that are being adopted across sectors are um, really quite novel, and I was pleased to see that there's also some technologies that are going to be available for uh, this issue of wild dog management. Well, hopefully it's successful because they do do a lot of damage to the pastoral zone in particular, but they are making their way further south as well. So thank you for your time today, Minister. No problems at all. Thanks very much, Kathy. Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, speaking there about the money that the state government and MLA is putting towards wild dog management. Now, Pete Whittlesey runs Mount Eber Station in the far north of the state. He's seen his fair share of dogs in the last few years. He joins me now. Good afternoon. Yep, afternoon, Kathy. What do you make of this $2.9 million that the government and Meat and Livestock Australia are going to be putting towards what uh, Minister Scrivens just said is largely statewide activities to lift the productivity through wild dog management? I'm not 100% completely over all of where, how the money is going to be set, but I feel as if what I've heard and what everyone's told me at this point in time is that the government's listening to the actual producers, like the pastoralists and the farmers, and it is statewide we're looking for, but the various groups that are on top of working towards the dog problems, and we've achieved a lot over the last four or five years, as you've just mentioned, about the new dog fence and the amount of dog activity that we have decreased in the last three years in particular is fantastic, but we have to stay on top of that and well, we've got them down, we don't want them to build up like that problem was three or four years ago. And the, the, the um, government and their sort of wisdom, I'm not, probably not going to say that too often probably, but they certainly have, this money I believe is going to be left to the groups across the state, whether that be the Air Peninsula or wherever the dog sort of issues are that we've got. And, and they can apply for that money to help their specific problems that they have got with the dog issues or even their actual industry, the sheep industry itself, to, to try and recover from the problems the dogs have have sort of in the past. The project is said to include the trialling of, of novel technologies and strategies, so perhaps some new things. What are some new elements to, to wild dog control beyond, say, the fence and baiting or trapping and shooting, that sort of thing? 
obviously all the basic sort of stuff. But I think nowadays with technology, there's a lot more modern methods. Like they've got the scan app, which you, you can sort of more or less an app across the state that... Soon, but, but we probably haven't got enough people using that. As soon as they see a dog, like a dog can cover 40 or 50 k's in a 24-hour period. Like it can move to the next area very quickly. So I think that you know that the various groups in each area all specifically target the things that they think their members can help on those fronts. There has been a good season for the last three years or so in the north of the state, and that has led to a proliferation of pests. Have you seen wild dog numbers rising just by virtue of the the fact that there's just a lot of feed around for them, or are the measures actually keeping them in check still? Well, we've only trapped one in the last 12 months or about nine months ago, so I wouldn't say that we have had a massive problem personally, but certainly one is like that dog still managed to kill 50 animals or more um, before we eventually got him. So yeah, he's still doing damage. But I think the key thing here now is we stay on top of the good work that we've done in the last three or four years and really stay on top of it on the inside. Without sounding too critical, there's a lot of people that uh, in the pastoral side, which I can speak more about, I suppose, that probably um, don't do a lot on that control, like a very elusive animal. And yet, is we sort of need more people to, to help in those areas to keep on top of it. We don't need them bringing up, breeding up like they were four years ago. Are you happy with the progress of the, the dog fence? Yes, no, I think we're doing a terrific job there. I think that's, like, we're talking about something that was in a state of degrade for more than 100 years and we've, we haven't had the funding in the past. Um, I'll, I'll give Jeff Power the credit on, on most of this. He really has driven that program massively to get to the point for the industry across the state we, we should replace two-thirds of the effects like it's 2100 kilometers right across the state we're hoping to get somewhere between 1400 to 1600 kilometers of new fence done and then with our new funding models hopefully over the next 10 years we should be able to replace every part of that fence and then once again a little bit like this money coming in a different subject we're talking about slightly there Cathy but certainly if we, we can't allow ourselves to get, to get back to the point of where we weren't getting enough funding from the groups, from the levies and so forth, to keep the little under maintenance. But like everything across the, in all fields of, of business have gone up. So we just need to, unfortunately, we've got to get up to cover those costs to make sure we don't get back to that, that state again. Well, it sounds like there's reason to be optimistic, though, that the, the numbers of wild dogs are heading in the right direction. There is going to be a, a demonstration site built, but as Minister Scriven just said, that hasn't been established yet where that will actually go. But uh, how important will that capacity for training and uh, um, teaching landholders how to deal with dogs be? Oh, massive, because there's, there's sort of fewer, fewer, less of us on the ground in the pastoral areas in particular, and probably even in farming across the, the state. So that what we do need to do is keep enough people trained up to know what's required. And as soon as we have a problem somewhere, we get right onto it straight away. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I hope it is successful in keeping the wild dog numbers down. Thanks for your time today. Mm-hmm. So do I, Cathy. Thank you. Pete Whittlesey speaking. There he's from Mount Eber Station.
hopefully, uh, yeah, we'll get some more information on what some of those activities are going to be and where the demonstration site will be set up. We'll stay in the far north of the state because the new director of the Outback Communities Authority says she wants to work with Outback Communities to handle feral cats. So uh, another pest species is in the crosshairs. Margaret Howard has taken over as director of the OCA, which provides council-like services to communities in the state's far north. Ms Howard said in some communities, feral cats have become a significant problem due to the lack of services and some people not following the rules. One of the issues that a lot of communities experience that it would be great for us to be able to provide much more support with is dog and cat management. Cats in a number of communities um, are a really big problem and it's a very different problem than people in larger towns or cities experience and there's a, a huge environmental impact from um, from the whole issue of cats not being managed. So some of those compliance issues, I mean, there are rules that apply to owning cats in the outback and, you know, having them to sexed and microchipped and those sorts of things. But there's, in some places, not enough compliance with that. So I'd, I'd like to see us be able to do more in that space and solve some problems that communities are currently experiencing. So that's an example. There's lots of things like that. Uh, so what um, what have you heard about, I suppose, what the issues with cats are in the outback? Uncontrolled breeding, escaping into nature reserves, becoming feral, causing nuisance in people's own properties that don't own the cats. You know, some of, some of the problems that can exist when... Um, there aren't necessarily the services available to to help people manage their cat ownership. What might you be wanting to see in this this space? Would it be some sort of ranges or more ranges if you have them? Um, would you um, more heavier fines for people who are not taking uh, care of their animals? Look, I th- no, I think I think in the in the first instance, it's it's around. Um, engaging with those communities that are experiencing the problem, involving them in um, some of the solutions and then looking at what resources there are to, um, to actually use to, to come up with, um, to put those solutions into place. And, and they could be, um, I'm, I'm guessing it's a complex problem and therefore there's going to be a range of solutions um, in, and possibly different solutions in different communities. So, um, yeah. Uh, yes, early days, and we'll engage with those communities that have raised the issue, and there's a number of them. Which communities have raised the issue? Copley has a, a really concerning problem that they've raised with us just recently. Um, when we were uh, visiting Copley a couple of weeks ago, um, it was raised there. So that's an example of a community that, that's got what they see as a, a very troublesome problem with, with cats. Outback Communities Authority Director Margaret Howard speaking with Lucas Forbes. Now, if you know someone who's doing some great work in South Australia farming, whether they are farming in a conventional way, maybe they're a leader in the community or perhaps a service provider, well, the Farmer of the Year Awards are about to close, so here's some details. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close today. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural.
You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, 95% of Australian wool is bought and processed in China. And wool growers have long-raced concerns about being so reliant on one buyer. Wool Producers Australia have now received funding for an industry representative to pursue processing opportunities in Vietnam. Joe Hall, CEO of Wool Producers Australia, says this is about expanding markets for wool growers. We saw the opportunity arise to put in an expression of interest um, into the OzHub process, which is an initiative between DFAT or the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Australian Chamber of Commerce, Vietnam. So under that EOI process, industries were invited to put forward uh, applications to investigate future trade opportunities with Australia or between Australia and Vietnam. Following our report from looking into domestic and diversified processing last year, where Vietnam was identified as one of four key locations, we thought it was a great opportunity to put in an application and we're really grateful that we were accepted. And what will this role entail for this representative? So at this stage, uh, the resource which will be based in Vietnam will look establish networks and work within existing networks within Vietnam to investigate the feasibility or the opportunity to look at early stage wool processing in Vietnam. Vietnam already has quite an established textile industry. What what role does it play in the wool market? Well, traditionally, um, or currently, uh, Vietnam has this uh, textile processing industry over there, but it's more focused on synthetics and cotton. What we're hoping to achieve through this is to investigate the feasibility of wool processing, um, bearing in mind that AWI or the Woolmark company has had resources in Vietnam for a number of years and, and looking to generate interest within the Vietnamese processing sector. We'll look to capitalise on that and we'll work with that resor- uh, with the AWI staff in country as well. What do you think has been holding back uh, the growth of Vietnam as a player in wool processing? I think it's possibly uh, a couple of things. Um, one is a, a lack of knowledge of, of wool processing. It is quite a long and convoluted supply chain. The other thing, there's some internal regulations that um, probably haven't been conducive to looking at, at wet processings, um, including some pretty strict textile effluent restrictions. So we'll be looking to for some pathways to overcome those barriers that are in place. And why do you see this is important for wool growers' uh, diversity when it comes to uh, wool processing around the world? Well, we're in the, currently in the situation where we have a, a great trading partner um, in China, but uh, we're looking to for market expansion. So that's why we undertook the work last year and the the year before investigating the feasibility of expanding current markets and and building on the great relationship that we have. If you look at some of the trade tensions there's been between Australia and China, some commodities have been hit with uh, market access issues, but wool remained unscathed. Can you put that down to the fact that uh, while Australia is reliant on China for it to buy and process so much wool, well, China's so reliant on Australia for that uh, raw wool? Well, definitely. China is very invested in the wool industry um, and Australia being the 
largest producer of apparel wool. We just uh, it, it's seen the evolution of a really mutually beneficial relationship between the Australian wool production sector and the Chinese uh, processing sector. So we've had that good relationship in place and, and that's continued unabated over the last few years. Joe Hall, CEO of All Producers Australia, speaking with Josh Becker. Now, it is the last day of summer. It's uh, certainly started off rather cool, but finished rather summery, although uh, a bit cooler around the state today than it was this time last week, to get a sense of uh, how the last day of summer and the first uh, few days of autumn are shaping up. I'm joined by senior forecaster Simon Timke. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. How are things looking? It's a bit overcast around the it, place by the looks yeah, of things. Yeah, there, there certainly is quite a bit of cloud around, uh, mostly in the south, uh, sort of the northern part of the state. The, the clouds are a, a lot patchier and seeing plenty of sunshine uh, uh, across the north, but, but plenty of cloud across the south. Not much falling out of it, though. Uh, there's a little bit of light shower activity um, near southern coasts. Uh, but uh, but once you venture a little bit further inland, conditions are, are, are pretty much dry. We have seen uh, uh, it was about a millimetre fall at uh, at Kingscote Airport, so a few showers uh, around down there. But but generally speaking, once you get away from those southern coast conditions, although cloudy, um, pretty much uh, pretty much dry. Uh, uh, and that's uh, uh, in a south to southeasterly airstream uh, around a very slow-moving ridge over waters to our south. And, and that ridge is going to dominate our weather um, pretty much through to the weekend. So we stay in this south to southeasterly airstream for the next few days uh, with the odd isolated light shower, uh, mostly near southern coast. They may extend a little bit further uh, northwards on Wednesday and see the odd light shower push up the southeastern coast of uh, York and Air Peninsulas and uh, maybe push a little bit further inland over the lower southeast, but generally not expecting any, any significant rainfall totals out of it, just the odd light shower here or there. Um, those showers continuing Thursday, probably clearing during Friday morning uh, to uh, 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 a dry and warming day on Saturday. Um, and, and that warming continuing on Sunday as we see winds go round a little bit more northerly as the high moves out over the Tasman Sea. So Sunday warming up, but there is a, a, a trough moving across from the west. It'll probably reach the far southwest of the state late uh, on Saturday uh, and then move across most of the state during Sunday, probably um, moving across the far northeast early Monday morning. Uh, and there will be some shower activity um, to follow that change. So uh, I think later on Sunday we'll see some showers that mostly be about the southern agricultural area and struggle to push uh, uh, too far northward of that. Um, but uh, Sunday following the change, some showers and those showers continuing over that area um, during Monday and Tuesday. But, but ahead of that change, the shower's only light uh, and unlikely to see uh, too much in the way of any, any significant rainfall totals for, for that, that four-day period out to the end of, uh, end of Saturday. I think we'll struggle to see um, many places uh, about that coastal fringe pick up more than about two millimetres or so, but there might be the odd spot that, that picks up two to five, but, but certainly no significant rainfall totals uh, out, out to the end of Saturday there, Cassie. Right, so it sounds like that uh, cyclone or deep low in the north isn't going to really make it this way at all. 
Uh, I don't think it will, no. I think with that, that ridge to our south really really being the, the dominant feature for our weather, we're, we're sort of struggling to see any, any of that moisture um, push down from the north. We're really getting the air mass pushing up from the south rather than dragging that moisture down from the north. So, so yeah, so staying, staying on the drier side and not, not really seeing any of that moisture come down our way. Absolutely. Well, it does sound like we're heading into some relatively typical autumn weather. Thanks for that forecast on the last day of summer. Thanks a lot, Cassie. Simon Timke there from the Bureau of Meteorology and there'll be more weather updates through the afternoon on your ABC local radio. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be sunny tomorrow. It could get a little windy through the day, 25 to 35 kilometres an hour. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 17 and 23 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach 31 to 39 degrees. Similar case in the lower western, sunny again, winds picking up to... 25 to 35 overnight down to 12 to 17 but the daytime temperatures reaching around 30 degrees coming up in the next half hour I'm going to explain to you how they're hoping or how the industry is hoping to grow Australia's seaweed production uh, there's a, a lot of interest but uh, how can it actually grow more on that soon uh, we're approaching 12:30 more to come You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Hello, yes, welcome to the show. I'm Cassie Huff, if you're just joining me. The River Murray flooding has caused enormous long-running damage, but one of the upsides has been fish spawning. Fish numbers have gone crazy. I've heard yabbies have been in full force as well. But uh, along with the, the native fish numbers on the rise, carp have also enjoyed these good conditions uh, for breeding, uh, which is perhaps not as good. But Kurong fishers are trying to get fish eaters to perhaps help out with the issue. Not once they taste it. Everyone who actually tries it is pleasantly surprised. It's only those people who just still refuse to even try it. that They're, they're a harder. You know, you, you're not going to get everyone, but I'd say 99%. That's interesting. I have never actually tried carp, but I'm feeling more and more like I should. We do uh, take a look at uh, eating carp as a, a method of controlling carp on this program a little. And uh, I would love to know what the best way to eat it is because I really think that maybe it is time to, to give it a go and maybe do my bit to, <laughs> to try and tackle the pest fish species that is carp because it sounds like it's in pretty strong numbers at the moment in the River Murray. So uh, if you've got some suggestions, text me 0467 922 or phone 1300 222891. Also coming up, there's an unusual way you can help researchers find out more about fox predation on turtle nests. I'll tell you how you can help soon. But first, we'll find out what's making news. We've got Matt Coleman with us. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the federal government will cap superannuation tax concessions. In a move, it says will hit about 80,000 Australians. The changes will affect people with superannuation balances of $3 million or more and will come into effect from the middle of 2025. At the moment, earnings from superannuation are taxed at up to 15%. That will increase to 30%. 
Another bill to decriminalise sex work in South Australia will be introduced to Parliament this year, with the Greens MLC Tammy Franks leading what she says will be the 15th attempt at reform. The state's Attorney-General Kaya Maher is backing the move, saying it's vital for protecting workers. And another 3 million doses of Moderna's Omicron-specific COVID-19 vaccine have been purchased by the federal government. The new vaccine has been granted provisional approval and is expected to be available to people 12 years and older from April. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. As I was saying earlier in the season, as the water from the flood event in the Murray moved into the Coorong, it was affecting the availability of fish for local fishers. But with the water levels slowly returning to normal, how much is changing? Well, Coorong Wild Seafood owner and manager Tracy Hill has been navigating the conditions and says that it has been difficult with the weather and the local environment, but things are starting to get on track. Well, the water levels are receding, so that's dropped. The freshwater line has dropped back quite considerably down back down towards the mouth area. So we're in, we're now coming into our normal summer pattern of mullet, which goes quiet for the next couple of months. And we're just hoping that the flounder and brim and hopefully the mulloway will come in, and then we'll be able to chase a bit of mulloway as well. But we'll see what happens when the when the flood water stops flowing out the barrages. So you're really just starting to see the fish come in that you would have seen a few months ago. Part of it was there was a closed season on black brim up to the end of January, so we weren't able to target those. And usually when you target those, you get flounder as well. So, yeah, it sort of restricted what we were able to target. But at that stage, the mullet were really firing up. But we're starting to, uh, between February and April, you normally get a period of time when the mullet go off to breed. So those catches go down and the other fish like mulloway, black brim and flounder are other species that we can catch over the warmer months. And have you been getting good amounts of fish? Have you been catching as much as you would hope to? Well, it's a bit hard also with the seals because <laughs> yep. you'll fish for a couple of days and then the seals will turn up and so you've got to pull your nets up and stop for a couple of days till they go somewhere else and then you try again. So it, everything's impacted by either weather conditions or the seals or even just the location of the fish. Sometimes if, if they're in amongst the weed, you can't fish in the weed either because your nets just get classed with algae and then you, you can't catch any fish. It's a very complicated and and difficult way to make a living but um, if you pay attention and you you know use your knowledge and skills you're also reliant on what water flows down the river system and what they let out the barrages and and how wide wide and deep your Murray mouth is as well so it, it just all impacts on it. Carp's been a bit of an unexpected benefit for your business that stocking that um, as it becomes more popular? Well, we- we can't actually keep up with the supply of product at the moment because it's all done, once again, all done by hand and Glenn's the only one that knows how to fill it. So we're very much restricted by the quantity that he can catch and process by himself. So, so um, But it sells as much as you make it, it sells. As much as we can catch. I've just had an order for 70 kilos for Tasting Australia Kudi Shack down at Goolwa, which is going to take us probably you know, several weeks to get into the freezer. Lots of filleting but ahead then. Lots of catching carp and filleting, yes, in between mullets and, and other stuff and yeah. tours. Sort of. Yeah, have you had a hard time changing people's minds on carp? Not once they taste it. Everyone who actually tries it is pleasantly surprised. It's only those people who just still refuse to even try it that they're, they're a harder, you know, you, you're not going to get everyone, but I'd say 99%. Of, so you um, think it'll gradually just become, you know, well, if more we popular? Can, if, if we can get, this is, this is why we're working hard to get 
other people interested in putting together some sort of business to process carp because we can't do it by even if we decided to go carp fishing we couldn't supply all of it by ourselves because once you get the markets going then you need volume so you know if you're trying to produce like we have a burger company that wants to do carp burgers but we we would have to process you know tons of carp a week to do that and so we can't we couldn't do it by ourselves we, we need other fishermen to get on board and how has the interest in your charter boat tours how has it been above average with people trying to get in while they the floodwaters are still there we've had a few people come and request the, the we do a murray mouth extension onto our normal seabirds and seals tour and um yeah we've had several people request to go down to the murray mouth the interest in the tours have has actually increased once that real strong wind cycle stops. So we've actually found that now that we're coming into that new, you know, more autumn calmer period, the inquiries have increased. So you know, we're we're pleased with how that's tracking along. Um, obviously, our main income at the moment is the is the fishing and processing. So uh, the tourism is a an add on, and over the next couple of years, we'll probably. Um, focus more on the tourism and, and perhaps less on the processing of fish. Tracy Hill from Kurong Wild Seafood speaking with Elsie Adama. Would you try a carp burger? I guess I could try it. I think I would like to try it just uh, a little more conventionally to start off with. Uh, I uh, would love to know how you like to eat your carp. You can text me on 0467922 or phone 1300 Steve from Encounter Bay reckons if you cook carp with lots of oil, it slides off the plate into the bin easily. <laughs> Don't think Steve's a fan of eating calf. I mean, it's always had that that stigma, but uh, yeah, is there a way to cook it that perhaps is a, a little less offensive? If, if, if Steve seems to suggest. I don't know. I've never eaten it, so I would love to know. Like I said, text 0467 922 or phone 1300 222 We'll stay with the river, but we'll head upstream a little to uh, learn about an unusual way that you can help researchers find out more about fox predation on turtle nests. Citizen Science Senior Project Officer Dr Sylvia Clark says Riverland locals can help by burying chicken eggs, 10 chicken eggs, in a 20 metre by 20 metre plot in their backyard and I will explain a little bit more about why that is useful but first let's find out a little about how their turtle surveys have been going since the River Murray flood event. Yeah so what we're trying to do is do a number of surveys across the whole system in South Australia because we really don't know enough about where the turtles are nesting so what we're looking for is evidence of them nesting which unfortunately is when the foxes have dug them up and we can see the eggshells. But it does mean that we can see where they are. So the pike area was one that we've seen. We've also done Lake Bonnie and Loxton and we've also had community looking at various places along the river. Because of the flooding, it's been a little bit tricky this year to get to lots of places, but we have managed to fill in a few of the gaps where we didn't know if they were nesting or not. And at pike, we did find some evidence, so that was pretty exciting. Mm, and so what does that tell you about, I guess, turtle movements throughout the flood event? Yeah, so it's been a little bit tricky and they would have nested probably in November. So by now, almost into March, uh, lots of the evidence has been scattered because the foxes tend to dig them up quite quickly and by now the eggshells are getting scattered around and we did find that um, we would often find eggshell but couldn't really see where the nest was. So from now on, it's going to be a little bit trickier until we get to next 
spring and summer to find them again. For people at home who might be thinking, okay, well, I'm going to keep an eye out for these white shells that might be scattered around the the floodplains and um, in various locations around the Murray, um, what should they really be looking out for? What does it look like when you come across a turtle nest? They're very white, the eggshells, and they're softer than a bird's egg. So if you pick them up, they're quite fragile. And if you're lucky enough to find one that hasn't been too scattered around, there should be quite a few around. Yeah, a little excavated depression kind of 10 centimetres across, that's a really good indication that it is a turtle nest. And then if you can put that location and a photograph on TurtleSat, then someone can also check from your photo as well if it is a turtle nest or not. And what you can do is actually go to the TurtleSat website as well if you want to know the kind of places to look and see where they've been found before which will give you a good idea on where to go and and have a look. There is one other thing. So as I said, it's coming to a little bit late in the season to find nests as easily now. But there is another thing that we're wanting people to do. If they've got a 20 by 20 metre plot somewhere that they could set up a little quadrant and bury some chicken eggs in their forest, that would be really handy. Because the problem is when we go look for these big surveys along the riverbank, we can see where the foxes have dug up the nest. But we can't see where the successful nests were because the eggshells stay underground when that happens and the hatchlings exit with just a tiny little hole. So we can't see them. So we don't know if the foxes have taken 100% of the nest or if they've only taken 20%. We just don't know. But by getting people to bury 10 little chicken egg nests in a 20 by 20 metre plot and then checking that again three weeks later, the foxes will come and dig them up. And that way we know there were 10 So if 10 were taken, we know that the foxes are out there and probably taking 100% of the turtle nest. But if they only take 50, that gives us a really good indication. And by people doing it at different times of year too, we can see the changes in fox activity. A wonderful thing for people to help us out with. Absolutely. Great little project uh, where you can help with these turtle surveys by Dr Sylvia Clark, Senior Project Officer for the Citizen Science from Murray Lands and Riverland Landscape Board. And she was speaking with Sophie Landau. Now, uh, a text in from Andrew from Hope Valley says uh, his neighbour eats carp. It tastes okay, but just so many bones. It's a pain to fill it and eat. The big ones would be okay. And they do get big, he says. Uh, uh, he says that... Uh, there were heaps lying uh, washed up last week on Murray Mouth Beach. Thanks for letting me know about that, Andrew. Now, Peter from Semaphore has called in. Good afternoon. Good day. Now, we, we, um, take it, you like eating carp? What is it that you like about it? Well, I've eaten plenty of carp. My uh, father, who had been an army cook, could cook anything really, and uh, he used to catch a lot of carp. We used to ca- uh, camp on the River Murray. He'd, he'd sort of fillet them, uh, put them through a mincer and uh, with onions and other bits and pieces, spices, and then make patties. And we used to have uh, carp patties and chips all boiled or cooked in, uh, on the side of the river. And they were fabulous. I think onion does help out anything, but that sounds uh, delicious. Are they quite bony, like Andrew suggested? Oh, they are, but... Um, Sometimes we caught some pretty big carp and it wasn't that hard to get the bones out. So it, it, we wasted a lot in in sort of filleting, filleting but putting them through a mincer uh, sort of most of those out anyway. And is it easy to get or do you fish for them or, or can you buy it? 
Well, the, the, the hard thing is to not catch them. <laughs> At the moment, I've heard that's the case. Oh, oh, for years, we were trying to catch something else, like callip or brim or congoli or whatever. But we caught mostly carp because that's what was in the river, has been in the river, well, you know, the last 40 years anyway. Well, it sounds like there's a bit of demand there for them. Uh, they just need more people getting out there fishing for them and perhaps maybe there will be a, a fish in, a carp industry and perhaps uh, your your father's uh, recipe might even get into some of the, the shops that are selling it because that does sound like a good one. Thanks for calling in. No worries. See you. And thanks. That was Peter from Semaphore. Kevin from Yankalilla has called in. Good afternoon. Uh, g'day. What do you make of carp? Uh, pretty much what the last guy was on about. Um, I lived in Canberra for a number of years, and a lot of people used to catch them out of Lake Burley Griffin. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of preparation in it. A German guy I used to work with put me onto them. He said, uh, I didn't eat many of them, but you get the biggest one you can. And like he said, a lot of bones, and the bigger one, it's the bigger bones, a bit easy to get rid of. And what's left after you've gone through, you mince it and turned them into patties, and you could add what you pretty much wanted to it, and then they turned out nice cart patties. Some people didn't even know they were eating carp when we used to uh, put them out on the table. You know, they're quite nice. Well, they, they probably just taste fishy, really, do they? No, no. Look, it'd be like eating a tuna patty, but without the taste of tuna, I'm, I'm guessing. You know? So, Fair something enough. like that. But, yeah, yeah. But, again, they're, 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 I think because of what they eat, they're a bottom-dwelling fish, I believe, and they eat a lot of stuff off the bottom of the lake or wherever they live, river. And that's why they've got that gamey taste. That's why you said you boil them. And it gets that, apparently, it gets that player out of them. I have uh, heard the, the, the trick is how you cook them. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, Like I said, I had this guy guide me when we did it, but uh, apparently you get the biggest carp you can get because the bones are a, little, a bit bigger and, and they've got bones so fine in them, but uh, the ones you can't get rid of, I, I guess you um, eliminate them in the blender or the mincer. Lots and of good Join the patties, yeah. Well, yeah, lots of great tips. It sounds like patties are very much the, the way to go and to catch big ones so you don't have to deal with too many bones. Thanks so much for yeah. calling in. No worries. See you then. Bye. Kevin from Yankalilla. That idea is backed up by David from Stepney who says that carp make excellent Thai fish cakes. So uh, I'm thinking if I try it, I am going to have to try them as uh, patties by the sound of things. Uh, Stavros uh, says that his recipe is to combine carp, salt water, pepper and a limestone rock. I think I know where this is going. Boil until the rock is tender, throw out the carp and eat the rock. <laughs> There's a few uh, foods that are like that. Thanks for, for texting in there, Stavros, with your suggestion. And Marty from Hallett Cove has texted in to say that uh, with a European background, believe it or not, they still farm carp and uh, they eat it every chance they get because... For them, it's uh, on the same level as any other fish. Pan fry it, cut it up into fillets if the fish is large, bake it in the oven, do it with uh, potatoes, lemons, olives, comes up quite nicely. And uh, I guess uh, he's suggesting here that if you grow up with it, it's much easier to get past the muddy taste. Or optionally, you can skin the fish and uh, the taste becomes a little less muddy as well. Thanks for that. Some great suggestions coming through. Murray from Belair has called in, I should say. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Kaz. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Are you a carp eater? Uh, no, but we've got uh, uh, sheep stations on the Darling River and down here at the Lower Lakes. And are you seeing a lot of carp? And uh, we found that if you... You know the, the carp patties, you use, um, you use some tomato and onion and mushrooms and herbs and things like that, 
the you make the car patty and it it tastes oh just all right. But if you leave the carp out, they taste really good. Leave them out. What do you mean, leave them out? Well, don't have the carp. Just have the patty with all the rest of the other oh, stuff. Oh, right. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay, so you're you're in the same camp as Stavros. Much, nice, much nicer without the carp. Cook it with a rock and eat the rock instead. Good <laughs> like the old Galar trick with the exactly. Sign, yes. Well, thanks for that. I take it there's still people who are not converts. I'm going to give it a go, though, and, um, yeah. Well, look, okay, then if they want them, if they want them, leave them in the lower lakes, and then above lock one, let let the virus go, the herpes virus, and we'll get rid of the car, but that will allow all the normal weeds that used to grow in the Darling and the Murray and fed fed our our native fish, which are beautiful fish, then then do it that way. That's okay. Let, Let them have the carp in the lower lakes. And fish, fish, like actually cook them to eat. Yeah, they can do what they like with them down there then and won't worry me. I'll, I'll be having <laughs> a lovely bit of Murray cod or a callop or a bit of black brim or catfish or whatever. Fair enough. Well, thanks for calling in, Murray. Appreciate <laughs> your you thoughts bye. on that. Don't know if they can control exactly where that um, herpes virus will go, but hopefully uh, sounds like an idea because it sounds like people are really keen on the, the carp in, in some areas, so we'd like to see it stick around. So you can keep the conversation going. Text me 0467 or phone one. 1- 300-222-891. It's 11 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Culture of a different kind now. A national hatchery network is seen as a vital part of the blueprint to grow the seaweed sector to a $100 million industry, employing some 1,200 people. Joe Kelly, the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seafood Alliance, or Seaweed Alliance, I should say, has told an international symposium in Hobart the key to that expected growth is all states and territories pulling together to push the industry forward. We're very excited about the National Hatchery Network. So one of the things that we identified through the AgriFutures funded work on the on the Australian seaweed industry blueprint was that a big barrier to getting started with cultivation is just having access to seed stock and the knowledge of how to grow and reproduce seaweeds. So one of the things that we're looking to do through a National Hatchery Network is provide that knowledge and capability and the clean quality seed stock that can actually help seaweed growers get in the water quicker. And that's a similar model to what's been adopted in the likes of the salmon industry where there's a shared hatchery facility, oyster industry and other industries in aquaculture, that's a similar model. Is it because of the biosecurity risks of moving stock between states? Yep, that plays a role in it. So we need to have um, locally collected seed supply and make sure that those seaweeds are native to those areas in which they're growing. But it's also because there's such a... Seaweed's a bit complicated in terms of the life history and the reproduction of it. And so, you know, each currently each seaweed company that wants to get in the water has to hire a team of scientists to work that out. What we want to do is take that mystification out of the process and fast track people actually getting in the water and growing by providing that clean quality seed stock. So how soon will some of these startups 
get their hands on this seaweed stock? Yeah, well, we're about to kick this off in collaboration with the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation and the federal government grant of $8.1 million that's coming to the seaweed industry. So we're expecting that to start in the next couple of months and hopefully within 12 months we'll have something to industry. Um, it's a two-year program. We're focused on asparagopsis species as the first seaweed type that would be in the National Hatchery Network. Um, and so that, that will be in the next year to two that we'll have um, seed stock for asparagopsis and then we'll expand it to other species of seaweeds after that. And this is a long-term plan to try and scale up asparagopsis production in Australia? Mm, absolutely. Well, the benefits you know, are obvious. So we've got a, an Australian discovery of a native seaweed that grows all around Australia called asparagopsis. And it has been proven by the CSIRO and others to reduce methane emissions in livestock by up to 98% when sprinkled in their food. This is, you know, with MLA and other um, agricultural producers on a mission to reduce their emissions, you know, quickly over the coming decade, this is going to be a key solution that enables them to do that. But while we grow seaweed, we're also providing ocean health benefits. And so it's a double whammy in terms of being, you know, an opportunity to help protect the the marine environment, but also to provide a a climate action product at the end. So once producers, seaweed farmers, get their hands on this seed stock and their research as well, what are those regulation barriers that are currently preventing farmers from getting into the industry and making money from it? Yeah, there's a number of barriers then to sort of actually getting um, ocean leases or space in the water to to start to grow this seaweed. It's different in each state. So each state around Australia and the, and the Northern Territory have their own state government uh, aquaculture policies and legislation. And so, you know, we're seeing some of the leaders being Tasmania and South Australia where they've really embraced seaweed. And, and WA has actually recently um, updated their policy as well to move forward with seaweed. Um, but some of the other states are lagging behind. So we're really needing to see seaweed firstly embraced as a part of the aquaculture suite that a state is going to pursue and then appropriate risk adjusted um, policy and regulation to support uh, this new industry that can actually provide net positive benefits. So is there regulation or legislation provided for seaweed within that Fisheries Act? In some states there are. So South Australia, for example, has their own um, seaweed aquaculture legislation, but other states, no. It's part of a broader aquaculture. It is a type of aquaculture within their legislation. And then you've got places like Victoria, which still doesn't recognise seaweed in the, as a type of fishery at all. So um, there's some work to do, and the, and the Victorian regulators are starting to work on that. And this is where the, the, the Commonwealth, you feel, might need to play a bigger role in this? Yeah. So we're looking for, you know, and the federal governments, every time they release an aquaculture um, report and part of the national aquaculture strategy that's still in place is around removing red tape and streamlining processes for aquaculture development. So that's, an, and to look at, you know, strategic marine spatial planning that will enable these industries to go ahead. The federal government has very much outlined those things for many years as being part of the agenda, but they are now starting to come to the party with investment in terms of helping seaweed specifically move forward. 
Joe Kelly, the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seaweed Alliance, speaking there to Larissa Smith about the blueprint for seaweed industry to expand to $100 million in Australia. Finally today, the dried fruit industry is expected to have two new grape varieties available for growers to plant in 2025. While they're still yet to be officially named, both varieties mature early. They're rain-resistant and CSIRO research scientist Peter Klingleffer explains why these qualities are being sought by the industry. The three main varieties, number one being Sultana and Sun Musket and Sun Glow. Well, Sun Glow and Sun Musket ripen later than Sultana. And so even though they're rain tolerant, they may have issues of getting them dry in some seasons. So that's the main drive is risk management to spread time of harvest, time of cane cutting for trellis drying across the season. So when you're talking early, how early are we talking about those being summer pruned? Very hard to say because what's early, the seasonal effects are so big and this year's been a ripper very late. We'll be looking at two weeks earlier than Sultana. In terms of how much fruit these new varieties will yield, have you been able to look at that, which is obviously something that would really interest growers if they were going to put it in the ground? Originally we would select a new seedling uh, variety and if it didn't have a reasonable crop we wouldn't proceed with it. But now for for the industry we're looking at certainly yields that are much greater than 10 tonne to the hectare. If everything goes to plan with these new varieties, how soon could we see growers planting them out in vineyards? Yeah, well, we're hoping with certainly with an earlier Sultana alternative and with a one that's got more musket than sun musket and ripens a little bit earlier, they should be available in probably two years. To get to the point where you're at now, how much work's been going on behind the scenes to get up to this point? Well, we've had good support from from the industry and from Port Innovation for many years with the breeding work. A particular project at the moment is targeted at a Sultana alternative. There's always a breeding step, evaluation step, getting material out onto semi-commercial evaluation on grower properties and then working with the industry to get source mother vine plantings established to meet the demand. And are you at that point where you've had growers evaluating these varieties that we're talking about now? Yeah, sure. Um, but the two that are very close to being being released have both been out on grower properties. Good feedback is they're achieving high yields and, and producing good dried fruit product. Processors have always paid a premium for golden-coloured dried fruit. The industry is now also interested in whether there's black grape varieties that are suitable for drying. Well, we've always um, historically have looked at drying black grapes, of course, with the small current varieties and Carina being the main one there but there's also opportunities with larger buried black types. Uh, I guess it's market driven. With a black variety there's two things. It's going to be slower drying because normally they don't get treated with drying emulsion like you would with Sultana. So the earlier the better. But the other issue is that it costs less to produce because you don't have to use the drying emulsion. 
CSIRO research scientist Peter Klinglefer speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. If you're a fan of dried fruit, sultanas, things like that, sounds like uh, there's some promising new varieties coming down the pipeline. That's just about all we have time for today. A few more texts have come in, though, on the uh, carp front. Uh, Peter, uh, sorry, Jude says, descale and gut the carp plus lots of seasoning and bake. Very nice. Thanks for that, Jude. Ian says, you catch your carp, put it in a crayfish trap, then eat the crayfish. Thanks, Ed. I love the I love the two sides to this um, argument. Uh, and finally, Stephen from Loxton eats carp on pavlova and vanilla slice. Sounds interesting, but it's not what you think he says. He buries the carp carcasses under his passion fruit vine, then grows wonderful passion fruit that he can put on his dessert. That makes a bit more sense. Thank you for all your texts and calls. It's been lovely to have a chat with you this afternoon. Keep listening to your ABC Local Radio. Sonia Feldoff will have more coming up this afternoon on your local radio as we approach 1 o'clock. Time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.